for Hernandez. Sidearm delivery and a comebacker. There's the good athleticism. He throws the glove to first. the Robinson Gearing Studio Complex and straight out of God's country, Pauly's Island, South Carolina, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network proudly presents Backwards K Pod. And now, here's the host of the show, Jake Robinson. Good moment, baseball universe. It's your boy, half man, half podcast machine. Holla if you hear me. Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. Back in the Captain Kurt chair. Shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pod. Where we collect ball players and their stories. Want to welcome everyone in from my uh, growing loyal Seamhead Army. To all the newbies who might have fallen into our little wonderland rabbit hole here. I especially want to welcome you in. If you're a newbie, welcome aboard, bro. I came, you know, basically I come through every Tuesday with those baseball red tops. Two for five, two for five. The dudes got garbage around the way. Actually, my cements, I do better than that. No Patreon, no crowdsourcing. I don't walk around to my audience and ever give you a bill for the content like those other guys. I keep it free. I'm like Arizona iced tea, baby. That price ain't never going to change. So all I ask in return is that you follow, subscribe, and download to keep it free. Backwards K Pod is available on all podcast platforms or wherever you listen to your pods. If you're an Apple or Spotify user, please remember to rate and review me as you see fit. I know, it's crazy. It's so hard to get those comments and reviews, but they help to grow the show and, again, to keep the content free of charge. To you, the audience. I uh, got a lot of positive feedback on last week's show on Calvin Jr. One guy here, uh, Adam out of Baltimore, by way of Philadelphia, wrote me. And he says, you know, not being from Baltimore, I took the stance that many outside of this area do. Cal was a gamer, but di- didn't he just show up every day? His stats weren't even that great. 
So when I first moved to Baltimore, I floated that theory around and learned quickly. He was so much more to this city than the streak. Fantastic episode. Uh, and then he writes, P.S. I heard you break down and crack for a second talking about your boyhood idol. I loved it. Hell, I couldn't get through something like this on Schmitty without blubbering like a baby. And and that was embarrassing. That really was. Because the whole time I was like, I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to break down. I'm not going to crack. And I got to tell you, every time I re-watched that streak week and the numbers falling and Cal hitting home runs, meeting the moment. I mean, he had, a, he had a home run in every game of that series against the Angels. And... It's, it's still, it just brought back memories and tears. So, thank you, Adam. Um, as far as me cracking, uh, I promised myself I, I was not going to break. But, you know, i got to be honest, Sam. I, I knew while doing research on Junior, it was going to be tough for me not to break. And all those memories, they all come, come back to, uh, you know, get, get inside your psyche. You know, I'm thinking about how I was holding my daughter watching that game with tears in my eyes. And also, I don't do like a lot of these podcasters do. I, I don't use the cut and paste edits. I carry my deal like it's radio, baby. I don't edit. I don't cut and paste. Uh, what you get is first take snake. The real deal. Whether it's good or bad, I'm completely uncensored and unedited. And I take pride in that. So, yes, I did start to crack there, but I caught myself, <laughs> and it was a little embarrassing. But, you know, that's the show. So, again, thank you, Adam, in Baltimore, and uh, thank you for moving from your home state of Pennsylvania to educate young Baltimore minds. He's a teacher in Baltimore City. You, my friend, are a hero. And anybody else, if you would like to leave a message for the show... I I have a couple ways to do so. Uh, you can email the show at backwardskpod at gmail.com. You can find the show on Twitter at back underscore K underscore podcast. Or you can just come on into the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network Facebook or YouTube page. Okay. So, with that being said, I see the catcher is coming down. So, let's dig into this week's topic and play ball. This week... We're going to take a look at the journey of the Hernandez brothers, LeBron and El Duque. And let's see, how do I want to set this up? Cuban athletes, baseball players, soccer players, boxers, even ballet dancers, they've had a long history of defecting while competing or performing abroad. Baseball players specifically often lead to sign up with the major league clubs in the United States because the strained relationship between Cuba and the U.S. It prevents them from taking part in regular hiring practices or like an amateur draft. Now, a deal that would have allowed some Cuban players to sign in the United States as free agents and still live at home and pay taxes. Uh, was canceled by the Trump administration in 2018. The agreement between MLB and Cuba would have meant athletes no longer had to abscond and leave their country under cloak and dagger operations. So, while these defections have been going on for a long time, it is a clear indication of the problems and the dire economic conditions on the island at the present time. If you think gas 
is expensive for us. <laughs> I mean, just how much, imagine how much it cost to fill your 1976 Oldsmobile Delta 88 at a gas station in Havana. Cuba is in the midst of an economic crisis with shortages of food and medicine. COVID-19 has ravaged the island and the hard-hitting sanctions have nearly crippled the country's lower class. You know, which is pretty much the whole fucking island except those Castro regime putos. And just last October in 2021, 12 players on the 23 and under national Cuban team defected in a tournament being played in Mexico. So let's think about that. It's affecting one of the greatest exports they have on that island. Baseball players are their greatest export. And with 12 players under 23 signings on teams in the U.S. for life-changing money, Cuba's international aspirations have been even more greatly diminished after failing to qualify for the 2020 Tokyo Olympics in baseball for the first time in the country's history. The bottom line is, as long as those multi-billion dollar contracts lay under the rainbow a mere 90 miles away, which is 145 kilometers away from my international steam heads, Defecting, presumably to me, would seem to be the most tempting strategy for any rising baseball star who is trying to get off that island. As a result, Cuban defectors have been some of the biggest MLB stories of the early 21st century. Arnaldos Chapman, uh, Yoannis Cespedes, Yazel Puig, Jose Abreu, Adamize Diaz. As well as Cesar Prieto, who was the prize amongst the 12 defectors from last October in Mexico, and who is now in the Orioles' prospect pipeline. But this week's topic, it begins with Levon Hernandez. And it was Levon's exodus from Cuba that began to highlight the cracks forming in the Cuban League system. A system that had for so long removed, uh, remained isolated from the clutches of Major League Baseball and their expansionist agenda. Well, look, let me amend that before we get started here. Truthfully, even before Levon, there was national team pitching ace Rene Orocha. And it was his daring escape at the Miami airport in the midst of a uh, 1991 Cuba versus USA friendly tournament that sent literal shockwaves to the Cuban baseball establishment. It was his defection and the rise of player agent Joe Kubas that would have a ripple effect in the game in both countries for decades to come. One cannot underestimate the role of Joe Cuba. And his role was simple. It connected the initial bridge from the impoverished island to the big leagues. Now, Joe's parents had escaped from the Castro regime. And Cuba's mission in life 
was to get these talented players off the island by whatever means possible, establish a third country residence, maybe like Dominican, Mexico, Venezuela, for example. And by establishing this third country residence, Kubis' player can now avoid a free agent draft system and U.S. Treasury embargo restrictions. Then, Kubas is able to shop his player to the highest bidder in one quick swoop. The obsessively anti-Castro player agent. Well, in doing this, he's striking a severe blow to the regime. And, let's be honest, he's also lining his pocket with a shit ton of money. So, after securing Arocha, Kubas played a large role in the escape of pitcher Ozzy Fernandez when he defected during a U.S. Cuba friendly in Millington, Tennessee. Fernandez had apparently been discussing the possible escape for some time now during clandestine meetings with Kubas at other tournaments. Joe had even managed to sneak his friend and Cape Cod real estate speculator Tom Cronin onto the island to square away particulars and the timeline concerns. And once Fernandez defected, he flew the Cuban pitcher to the Dominican Republic with formal plans already in the works to put him on the free agent market. Only a few days later, Joe Cubas receives word that young prospect Levon Hernandez was ready to bolt from the national team playing in Monterey, Mexico. So what had begun as, you know, this little spurt kind of trickling from the cracking dam was now beginning to spit a steady stream of water. And Cubas had positioned himself and quite an advantageous, advantageous kind of position as the liaison between Cuba and the United States. A year after Levon, Rolando Arojo walked out of team quarters in Albany, Georgia. Again, it was Cuba's master plan that included uh, a secretive, well-timed smuggling operation that had already secured his wife and two young sons safely out of the country. And that came on the eve of the Atlantic uh, Atlanta Olympic Games. And it so embarrassed the Castro regime that the USA-Cuba-friendly tournaments would be suspended for almost 20 years after that. So, while the first stream of success came from veteran hands like uh, Fernandez and Arojo, it would be the highly talented prospect, LeVon Hernandez, who would by far be his biggest haul at this point. Uh, It was the escape and the Major League exploits of LeVon that would propel the sad and convoluted story of El Duque's fall from grace at home. And the eventual shunning of the Cuban baseball system that had given birth to his talent in the first place. Now, LeVon was, well, he's 20 years old, still developing natural talent with a uh, mere three seasons and 27 victories under his belt with the Isla de la Juventud baseball team. 
And although he was already a member of the national team preparing for Intercontinental Cup play when he defected, his promising career was barely underway on his home island. And he was a much different pitcher than his more celebrated older half-brother, Orlando. Levon was a more natural, almost elegant, if you will, type of athlete. He had a flawless, repeatable, mechanical delivery. Uh, a smooth delivery that any prospect in the minors would, you know, die to have. A fastball that exploded out of his hand. He literally was a dream of any baseball scout scouring the planet for talent. El Duque, on the other hand, in American terms, is a gym rat with a high baseball IQ. He had worked his ass off to develop and polish his game with guile and intelligence. He didn't possess the smoothness and velocity that Levon naturally had, but Orlando began enjoying success with the Industriales team during the mid-80s with his impeccable command of the strike zone and his dazzling array of pitches he could bring in pretty much any pitch count and from different arm angles. By contrast, it all came kind of easy to Levon. Sometimes too easy in the eyes of some. To some of his coaches and members of the Cuban sports press, what he had in raw natural abilities, he lacked in self-discipline. And they would often loudly criticize young Levon in fear that he was squandering uh, his God-given abilities. And there had been very little contact between the two growing up, as the half-brothers lived virtually on two different corners of the island. The first day they met, uh, LeVon was actually already 10 years old. El Duque was born to a different mother, his father's first wife, a decade, decade earlier, on October 11th, 1965. By the time LeVon would make his rookie debut with the Isla team, the Duke had already logged six National Series seasons. Now, LeVon was actually born in the same province as his elder brother on February 20th, 1975, but he moved to the isolated territory of Isla de la Juventud as a youngster. And they lived there while his his ballplaying father served a brief stint there as a manager and a young pitching coach. Well, not so young, I guess. The two brothers, they did develop a warm relationship with one another, another despite the age and personality differences, as well as their life circumstances. Levon was the first of the two to become frustrated with the hard-knock struggles of living in Cuba. And there are probably a couple reasons why the younger brother chose defection before the Duke. And I'm not really paid to tell you what I think, but here is what I know. Number one, Orlando lives in Havana, which is a more stimulating environment than the almost maroon lifestyle that LeVon lived out on the Isla. Orlando had two daughters and a wife. He had garnered some celebrity status as the island's best pitcher, which afforded him a little better of a home life than many others. It's not like he's living on A1A Boulevard, but by Cuban standards, not bad. Levon, on the other hand, 
even by Cuban standards of the early 90s, he lived a remote, isolated nightmare. Ultimately, though, it came down to the repressive nature of the socialist dictatorship and repeated bans by the security detail on carrying home simple, basic toiletry items such as shampoo and soap. And Labad began to wonder why he was sacrificing himself from simple items like shampoo and soap to an ideology that demands you to remain pure. While so many are back on the island without even the most basic necessities. Shampoo and fucking soap. So in 1995, while training in Monterey, Mexico, a young woman approaches Levon with an autograph book. And when he took the pen, the woman opened the book to the center. And on that page, there was a photo of Joe Cuba pasted to the page. And it said, El Gordo, the fat man. Now, Levon stares at the book, and he literally freezes in his tracks. He's seen this dude before. He saw him in Japan, Venezuela, Mexico, the United States, in back rooms, restaurants, hotels, wherever the team plays, there was El Gordo in the shadows, like a fat ninja. With that, the lady slides a piece of paper into Levon's hand. It had a telephone number on it. And all she said to him in broken English was, Call him. El Gordo. So, Levon puts out the call. And sure enough, El Gordo was waiting for him in his hotel room. And the two shared a spirited, intimate conversation about life, dreams, aspirations. Levon told the fat man to come pick him up. So at 1 o'clock in the morning in a restaurant parking lot in the old industrial section of Monterey, there was Levon looking for El Gordo in sheer terror. Now, the fat man steps out of his car so Hernandez can see him, and Hernandez takes off in a sprint. He's carrying a single bag, and he's got a, just his eyes, he's got tears running down his cheeks. And in his near-panic rush to freedom, he narrowly avoids getting hit by a car that swerved in the last instant. Laurent reaches the vehicle. He and the fat man embrace before he urges Hernandez to get into the car. Next morning, they're in Mexico City. A day later, they're on a plane to Venezuela. And the rest, as we say, is history. And Levon, for all his natural talent, he did have growing pains adjusting to the United States with a $3.5 million signing bonus and a three-year, $4.6 million contract with the Florida Marlins. He quickly found new challenges in his life of a far different order than he had ever faced before. He was a kid that lived in extreme poverty, an isolated life with barely a pot to piss in, and who had developed... Very little ways, uh, he developed very little in the way of uh, self-discipline. And here he is suddenly thrown into this land of plenty, American abyss, with virtually unlimited resources and cash. He gorged on McDonald's food every day. 
At one time, he was buying a new sports car every three months of his first year on American soil. It almost robbed him of his career before it even started, as he ballooned in size, and he seemed to lose some heat on that fastball. Now, the Marlins brass are watching helplessly as their Cuban prize appears to be careening out of control, heading towards self-destruction. And it became obvious during his first year at AA Portland and AAA Charlotte that LeVon was really, well, he needed to be in reclamation mode for his immediate handlers. And actually, reclamation won out as LeVon slimmed down enough to gain his effectiveness back and the drive to reobtain his nearly lost pitching skills. He, he had a remarkable 1997 rookie season, playing a role in lifting his newly vetted National League team to its first division title and postseason appearance. His 9-3 record and his impressive pitching down the stretch had won the hearts and minds of Miami, the Cuban exile community at first. Uh, well, I'm sorry, at long last, they had their own kind of hometown hero of sorts. Not one pitching in St. Louis like Arocha, or in Oakland like Ariel Prieto, or even in nearby Tampa like Arojo. No, right here in front of his exiled countrymen, just a long fly ball from Miami's Little Havana. And postseason heroics would cap off LeVon's 1987 rookie season as he would become the first Cuban in decades to play a significant role in an MLB pennant race. In the NLCS, LeVon gave a MVP series of performance. I mean, he was outstanding. He won one game with three innings of scoreless pitching, and then as an emergency starter in an all-tied-up series, Game 5, Hernandez abused the Braves' uh, lineup with a three-hit, 15-strikeout masterpiece, propelling the Young Fish to the World Series to face the mighty Cleveland Indians. We have a fastball, curveball, slot, and a change. And the strong suit is he will throw all the pitches at any time, and he can throw them for strikes. Struck him out. 2-2 pitch. And he gets the blitz swinging. Can LeBron Hernandez get out of it? Yes, he can. Strikeout number four. Call strike three. The 3-2 pitch with one out. He's not going. Yeah, call strike three. Number seven. So he's not out of the box. But he is out on strikes. Did he get him? They check the third, and Charlie Williams punches him out. Nine for Hernandez through six. Pitching two pitch. That is his tenth strikeout. It's a career high. Three-two lead. Strike three is 11. Said he wasn't sure. Strike three. A dozen now. as he gets the pinch hitter, Brad, in two. There's his 14th strike. 
championship series record. The 3-2 pitch. Got him! And Greg punches him out on what McGriff thought was ball four. It's his 15th. fans bemoan the Eric Gregg strike zone that day and you know look rightfully so but at the same time for Miami this was payback for all the times Glavin and Maddox were uh, able to paint the black against the NLE's opponents with a very giving strike zone and catcher Charles Johnson kept putting that glove out there and Levon was hitting them spots true as an arrow and what a performance by LeVon. Once he figured out that he was going to get that call to strike all day, he just continuously went out there. And not to be outdone by his championship series MVP, he went ahead and captured the World Series MVP honors by beating Indians pitcher Oral Hershiser twice, including Game 1 and the Game 5 rematch. It was the first world title for a still young Miami franchise, and it was one made special for Cuban exiles cheering for one of their own. The extra inning instant classic game seven, which saw the fish win in uh, an eventual walk-off hit by Edgar Renneria, was followed by a love fest celebration between the Miami population and their new hero. And in a surprise gesture of goodwill, Fidel Castro allowed Lamont's mother to travel to Miami for the series final game. And with the unexpected reunion with his mother and the trophy of a champion in his hand, LeVon would raise his MVP trophy above his head and defiantly scream, I love you, Miami. A soundbite captured by every news agency around the world covering it. A soundbite that surely hit the Castro regime right in the nuts. LaVon Hernandez. Let's see here. Final MLB stats. Right? 17-year career with the Giants, Nationals, Fish, Snakes, Twins, Mets, Rocks, Braves, and Brewers. Man, that's a lot of teams. 30.0 war, 178 wins, 177 losses, a 4.44 ERA, 519 games, 474 of those he started, 50 complete games, 3,189 innings pitched, 3,525 hits surrendered, 1,686 runs, 1,976 strikeouts. And 1,066 walks, 95 ERA plus, and a 1.44 whip. Now, the remarkable story of El Duque, who in real time of this story, LeVon's story, he's back in Cuba, where the power establishment of the regime has made a baseball pariah out of him. 
watching his brother's exploits on TV, he was both happy and envious. His world had taken quite a turn since his half-brother left him that day in Monterey, Mexico. So let's take his story back to the beginning a little bit further. Orlando is the third duque, or duke of the family. His father, Arnaldo, was an... Yeah, he was like this erstwhile Cuban player during its earlier decades. And the same with this Arnaldo's father, Arnaldo Sr. Orlando's father, who fathered four children with three different women, is often described as this dude who like lived this vagabond, carefree existence, enjoying an aura of irresponsibility and decades of passing briefly in and out of all of his children's lives, including Orlando and Levon. Arnaldo's oldest son, Orlando's brother by two years, older brother, was himself named after Arnaldo, and he was the most gifted athlete in the Hernandez family, probably ever. But, a machete, a machete accident during his teenage years it scarred his wrist and it robbed the boy of his fastball. When Orlando was born, the father wanted to name him Arnaldo as well after himself, but the mother rejected the thought of that and he rearranged the letters and came up with Orlando. Arnaldo Jr., became, because of his childhood accident, was only to play one season for the National Series as he was desperately trying to resurrect the pieces of his broken baseball dreams when he died from a fatal aneurysm at the age of 30. And the extreme poverty, it, it, it contributed to his untimely death, the, the, the lack of a family phone, gasoline, electricity, ambulance, uh, delayed medical assistance. All these things played a role in Arnaldo's death. And Orlando was devastated by the loss. Ironically, Orlando was probably the least gifted of all of Senior's kids. His path to the National Series was much more arduous and El Duque worked his ass off for every piece of respect and recognition he ever earned. He was obviously exposed to the game as a toddler. After going to Latin American Stadium to watch the original Duke, his father. And baseball was, it, it was in his blood. However, at the age of 11, he, he tried out for the Provincial Sports Academy and he was rejected. And he was told that he had little aptitude for the sport, which I just find amazing. But undeterred, El Duque pressed on with his older uncle mentoring him now as his father had moved on to spread his seed or whatever he was doing. By 16, a high-level sports academy accepts him. And at the age of 21... He makes his official debut for Industriales, the same team his father once famously played for, and he would spend six seasons there before he truly blossomed 
and to a recognized pitching ace. And by the mid-1990s, uh, El Duque is the king of Cuba. The baddest pitcher on the island. He's going 34-6 and six over a three-year span. He and eventual defector Rolando Arrojo, they were kind of like these heated rivals, often playing games with stakes involved. And by the time the 1992 Barcelona Summer Olympics come around, El Duque was a mainstay on a potent Cuban pitching staff. In 10 seasons, playing in the National Series, Orlando compiled the best win-loss record in Cuba history, and it still stands today. During that span, he won 126 and 47 for a 728 winning percentage. The mark remains his lasting legacy on the island of Cuba. And, like I said, Duque's troubles began shortly after Fernandez and his brother bolted for the United States. This uh, feeling of paranoia and fear began to grow inside the Cuban camp. Once Levon geased out, Orlando was placed under like this immediate surveillance like ball of scrutiny because the regime was concerned that he was going to defect as well. But it didn't just stop with surveilling him. In March of 96, he was dropped from the Atlanta Olympic roster. And the pain of being dropped from the team was compounded when he heard the, uh, the news while watching the announcement on television. And at this time, Orlando... Al Duque, he's falling into like this pit of frustration, sadness, depression. His brother, Levon, had told him that he was leaving after his meeting with Fat Man El Gordo. And Al Duque told his brother that he would support any decision his young sibling took, but his life was in Cuba, and his wife and his two daughters. The thought of him defecting, it wasn't even a question, as Orlando had way too much to lose at his advanced age. Behind the socialist curtain of the Cuban regime, the game became even more deadly as Juan Ignacio, a cousin of Joe Cuba, tried to undergo a hostile takeover of Cuba's sports enterprise by cutting out Joe Cubas and going directly to the island to poach the players from under him. And instead of going underground like in this omerta, quiet, you know, kind of, you know, style, Ignacio flaunted his presence on the scene. He's flashing loot. He's making brazenly open conversation about his agenda on the island. And it didn't take long for Cuban state security to get an idea what this cat was doing. And they arrested him at a youth tournament. Upon his arrest, they found forged documents and illegitimate passports with El Duque's name on them. And the already disgraced pitcher was the big fish that he was hoping to steal from under Joe Cuba. What followed was a series of trials that ensnared a number of Cuba's finest baseball players, uh, hopefuls, including Orlando Hernandez. Al Duque stoically maintained that Ignacio was merely a friend, and he knew nothing of this man's smuggling enterprise. Now, teammate Herman Mesa, 
He told the Cuban courts that Ignacio is an enemy of the Cuban state. And he's trying to steal her citizens to play baseball for the Americans. And a certified catcher, Alberto Hernandez, evasively answered questions about his own discussions with Joe Cubas during trips overseas. And Juan Ignacio was promptly found guilty. And when I say promptly, they pretty much were uh, transferring him from the prison to the courthouse. And on the way to the courthouse, the cops just told him, yeah, you're guilty, dude. You're sentenced to 13 years. And he would serve all 13, 13 of those years in full. And he was charged with plotting a scheme of illegal defections for El Duque, Herman Mesa, Alberto Hernandez, and most likely ace pitcher Pedro Luis Laza. But the truth is, he was also being punished for all the successful actual defections that were orchestrated by Ignacio's cousin, Joe Cubas, as well as, you know, just quite honestly, his bumbling, pathetic, and arrogant attempt at pulling it off. And there were several implications from the conviction of Ignacio. The wannabe agent was the link between Levon and his impoverished brother back at home. And Levon would send gifts and much-needed cash to El Duque. In fact, it was Ignacio who for a while was carrying large bundles of American cash, not only to his brother, but also his mother still living on the Isla de la Juventud. And he would do this with pretty much no discretion, minimal regard, for almost two years, completely disregarding the more conservatively discretionary Joe Cuba's plan of execution. And so on that final run, he was in possession of forged Venezuela work visas. And paper like, papers like these are, are highly illegal Cuban, as I, I would assume they are almost in any other country, but nobody wants to get caught with illegal Venezuela work visas in fucking Cuba. I mean, that's ding-ding. That's not a good look. In the wake of the trial, Duque, Herman, and Alberto were informed they were now being banned for life from Cuban baseball. Alberto would return home in disgrace and shame as the state dismantled his hometown, hometown shrine of his town's ballpark and it highlighted his Olympic gold medals and hard-earned trophies. Herman, who many suspected cooperated at trial to cover his own ass and hopes for a pardon, he disappeared in obscurity for two years. But it was El Duque who received the most severe punishment in the banishment. He could only play baseball in a weekend recreational league, and he was forbidden to pitch. He couldn't wear any uniforms of any type, but they did allow him to play in his most treasured possession, a New York Yankees t-shirt. His marriage fell apart, and he was assigned to work at a psychiatric hospital for pennies of that. And his life had officially hit rock bottom. All this was going on while watching his brother 
lead the damn near expansion franchise Marlins to a world title over the mighty Cleveland Indians. And with tears in his eyes, and who knows what kind of thoughts in his head, El Duque looks at his beautiful daughters and his brand new girlfriend, and he stares at the sky. The time has come for Orlando to change his stars. In 1997, after visits to Cuba from the Pope earlier that summer, the Castro regime allowed Christmas to be celebrated again on the island after almost 30 years of the prohibition of the holiday. So, with the state security patrol being a little lax because of the holiday spirits and probably drinking a little bit on duty, Orlando and six of his closest comrades would evacuate, would execute a plan to get off the impoverished island. The detail would include uh, his shamed battery mate, Alberto, his new girlfriend, his childhood friend, Osmani Lorenzo, and the boat pilot. And as the crew of defectors leave under the cover of dawn, the plan is to reach the remote Anguilla Islands. And after an hour in the water, the boat suddenly conks out, and they are dead in the water. They are still technically in Cuban waters. If anyone finds them, they are in big trouble, especially Orlando. So after checking the engine, the captain says the problem is in the engine under the hull, and it needs to be dry docked. Unfortunately, we're going to have to go back. And by this time, Orlando is terrified. Going back is not an option. They must just execute, you know, they might just execute him and his family if he goes back. And he implores the captain to, to get in the water and fix the problem. And after some debate, the captain enters the water, and about an hour later, the problem is solved. They continue on until they reach the K. Now, the first half of the mission is over. The second part involved waiting on the K as Joe Cubas had organized a pickup of the refugees by boat. As Al Duque and his friends watched their uh, ride head back to Cuba, their dreams of freedom were now only hours away. Unfortunately, the boat that was sent to pick them up sunk in the Atlantic, leaving the hungry and unprotected crew exposed alone, and certainly confused about their current situation. For three days, the seven refugees aimlessly wandered the quay, looking for anything on the horizon. And all of a sudden, they could see helicopters headed their way. Not knowing, or really by this time caring who they were, the near-desperate group of Cubans began hailing the choppers from the island. Thank God, it's the Americans. And out on the ocean horizon, they see the U.S. Coast Guard storming towards them. And from there, they were taken to the Bahamas. And that's when a whole new set of problems arose. For a minute there, it looked like the party may be sent back to Cuba because of an agreement between the Bahamian government and Cuba that said all Cubans on Bahamas soil were to be returned back to Cuba immediately. Sadly... If El Duque wasn't a high-profile pitcher, and he didn't have an influential world mover like Joe Cuba, that probably would have happened in this situation. But Cuba quickly 
secured U.S. working visas for Orlando and his companions. And Joe Cubas was also uh, able to expeditiously arrange a transfer to Costa Rica, where the Fujis would eventually receive the required third country residence. Within six months of standing on the quay, wondering about his future, El Duque signs a four-year, $6.6 million contract with the New York Yankees and a $1 million signing bonus in 1998. And El Duque wastes no time and nearly matching his little brother's postseason heroics. The Cuban import went 12-4, emerging almost overnight as the ace of an already talented Yankees club. And certainly a very talented Yankees pitching staff. Down the stretch, he carried the Yanks, hurling several crucial victories in a, in a postseason sprint to the league pennant. In Game 4 of the ALDS, El Duque led his Bombers to a win with a masterful 7 inning shutout win over the mighty Cleveland Indians. Hernandez. Well, he has a, a lot of pitches, a variety of pitches, and he throws them from a lot of different angles. Has a lot high leg kicks. He hides the ball, but it's important for him to be able to get his curveball over the plate. One two pitch struck him out. Beautiful pitch there by Hernandez. Took a lot off of that pitch. Change up, moving down and away from Justice. Justice trying to pull it, trying to hit the hole on the right side. Here it comes. And a long drive to right. O'Neal. Back to the wall. Good Justin up room. Down goes Alomar. And Hernandez settles in with a 1-2-3 second. Still 1-0 Yanks. 3-1 pitch bounce back to the mound. El Duque has it. Runs it halfway to the bag before flipping to Martinez. And they're out of the third. Still 1-0 on the O'Neill home run. York, lots of friends come to see him play. He goes down swinging. Play after his brother LeBron did. And down goes Tommy. Two straight strikeouts to start the fourth. Well, I mean, that's a possibility, but Joe Torres says he's going to stick with Andy Pettit. A mile-high pop back of the plate. Posada has it. And with some pop in the offseason. Approaches with a nice play. And he throws him out. Struck him out. Huge strikeout for El Duque. This is not inside, but it's just a good fastball. He drops down and throws a fastball by Ramirez. He absolutely handled that Cleveland lineup. And that was a very good lineup. You're talking Justice, Ramirez, uh, Tomei. I mean, they had so many different weapons on that team. And Orlando just was confusing them all night. So they would go on to win that game. And his single World Series outing that year, he stymied the Padres, leading the Yanks to a 9-3 victory en route to a four-game sweep of San Diego. The dream season was crowned with a tearful 
reunion with his mom and two daughters, just in time for the traditional New York City ticker tape victory parade. When El Duque first made it to the shores, his brother was waiting for him, and the two hugged and cried. But this, this, this is icing on the cake. The regime was actually letting his mom, his wife, and his two daughters, his first wife actually, and his two daughters, stay in America. As he and his wife uh, looked in the air during that uh, ticker tape parade, looking at all the paper being thrown about, they began to notice that a lot of it was toilet paper. And Orlando's wife says to him, these Americans are crazy. Now people in Cuba would die for just one roll of that toilet paper. And Atuque, he just smiles at his freedoms and all the possibilities of his future ahead. So, let's take a look at Orlando Hernandez's final MLB stats before I bail. Nine-year MLB career with the Yankees, Mets, Snakes, White Sox. He had a 23.1 war, 90-65 and win-loss record, and a 4.13 ERA. 219 games, 211 of those were starts. 1,314 innings pitched, 1,086 strikeouts. A 110 ERA plus and 7.4 strikeouts per nine with a 1.26 whip. And that, my CMED friends, is the story of the journey of Levon and El Duque. I want to thank you all for joining me this week. I just can't imagine uh, what I would do in that situation. Honestly, I mean, it really saddens me the choices that people have to make to survive. And hopefully one day we can all find a suitable compromise that will stop these crazy types of getaways. It seems like, well, it seemed like at one point we were headed in that direction, but things have stalled in regards uh, of our leaders. So, you know, hopefully all those things can somehow change because it's very, very dangerous. And those are just two harrowing stories of many Cuban players that have defected to the major leagues. Please remember to follow, subscribe, and download. You can check out my vault of fresh produce and my archives at diamondsnakejake.podbean.com. Thank you for all your support. Check me out on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. And by next week, I'm going to start giving in uh, the info out on the upcoming bonus show as I will be interviewing world-renowned baseball artist Greg Kreinler soon. And I'll give you the full deets on that next week. And speaking of next week, we will be looking at currently the third oldest stadium in the major leagues, Dodger Stadium at Chavez Ravine. And I'm very excited to do that show. I've never been there, so I'm anxious to get the skinny on the Palatial Palace of West Coast Baseball. But hey, that's another story for another podcast here at Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers... And their stories. Parents, if you see your kid, nose in a phone, looking about as productive as a slug, by all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank you all for coming out. God bless and win the day. <laughs>